electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, the man, the investor, the legend, Bridgewater founder Ray Dalio tells us what he starts with. I think it's worth considering all the alternatives to cash. I have a a certain amount of money in Bitcoin. It's a small percentage of that which I have in gold, which is a relatively small percentage of what I have in my other asset classes. The state of your portfolio and the state of the states. We certainly have kind of a war developing between the various factions, the states and so on, and how that'll be resolved. COVID's continuing impact on the economy and, well, life. Former FDA head Scott Gottlieb. We're going to have to learn how to live with this. This is going to become an endemic virus, and we're going to have to learn how to assimilate you know, daily risk into our lives. Those stories, plus the rest of today's headlines that got us squawking. It's Wednesday, September 15th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back, you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin, who is live from the SALT conference in New York today. Andrew, I just want to wish wish you Godspeed on these nuclear talks. Uh, I don't know what you have to do with, with this <laughs> limiting strategic arms. No, 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 silly. He's there for the state and local tax issues. Oh, it's a tax conference. Right. That makes more sense. No, from, no, no. Uh, Let's not undersell this. Andrew, why don't you tell us what is coming up on the SALT agenda today? It's a big deal. Uh, thanks, Becky. We're not talking about taxes or anything else. Uh, we are here uh, at uh, the SALT event. This uh, happens every year, but this time it's in New York. It's at Javits Center. We're right across, of course, uh, from the Hudson River here. It's at the Expanse Center. By the way, one of the first, I think, in real life events uh, that's been taking place just about anywhere Uh, A huge lineup of guests that are going to be joining us this morning, a huge lineup of guests that have been here all week. Among them is Bridgewater Associates founder Ray Dalio. So we'll talk to him because no investment decision can be made right now without thinking about the impact of COVID. We're going to talk to Dr. Scott Gottlieb in person. He's going to be here as well. So many other big names have been here over the past several days, including uh, Dan Loeb and others, Steve Cohen. Part of the the topic, I mean, we're going to talk about Gary Gensler and, and the crypto issue, but that is topic number one here, as is China investing there. And then the debate we've been having on our own set over the past couple of weeks around buybacks and taxes and what that means. And yes, to some degree, even salt itself, even though uh, that as a topic is not what this is. Uh, that's what's on tap today. You're not talking about the thing that causes, you know, potential health problems with high cholesterol. You, you are talking the state and local taxes now. I mean, there's like, you know, you got to be very, very there, clear. Yeah. So I you ran mean into a guy who got me into a conversation about, about salt, but I don't know if you appreciated the irony of that. And I, I don't <laughs> know if that was more of a one off right. or common acronym. What about these buybacks? 60 billion. Is, is Microsoft Huge. trying to juice the stock or Either something? Either that or do it before they, they start taxing buybacks. Right. <laughs> I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily. Yeah. Today's top corporate story, Microsoft, the company announcing it's going to buy back up to $60 billion in its shares. The purchase program will have no expiration date. 
It's hiking its course. That's similar to what we've seen in the past. You never know whether they follow through on it. Raising the quarterly dividend by 11% to 62 cents a share. That gives it a dividend yield, though, of just uh, eight-tenths of a percent. And one more announcement from Microsoft. Uh, President Brad Smith is being appointed as vice chair. He looks familiar to me. Um, He's a friend of the show. He was on last week, I think. Yeah. Right? That's how he's, he looks he's on pretty frequently. He is, but I think it was, wasn't it just, I think I'm, see, you guys don't know either. It was just last it was, week. Yep. Uh, no, it was just, he was just with us last week. It, it, it was just last week. Yep. And see, I remembered that. Can't get much by us. Coming up on Squawk Pod, Bridgewater founder Ray Dalio. How he diversifies his own assets and how he's looking at investment in China. How does a communist party that talks about Marxist-Leninism and at the same time has the second largest capital markets and the development of capital markets coexist. The United States and China are the most capitalist countries. That extended interview right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. This is Squawk Pod. Today, Andrew Ross Sorkin is at the SALT conference, hosted by hedge fund Skybridge Capital. I can hear the programming. Are you right? Let me ask him. Are you hearing the programming okay? SALT was born as the Skybridge Alternatives Conference. Its flagship event with keynotes and panels on a range of investment issues returns in 2021 in person in New York City. Here's Andrew. We are joined now by a very special guest right here at the SALT Conference in New York City. Bridgewater Associates founder Ray Dalio is with us. It's great to see you in person, I think, for the first time in a very long time. We're coming out. Right? We're coming out. Um, We've all been trying to make sense this morning, as we do every morning, of where we are in this economy and where we are in the markets. And I haven't had an opportunity to to hear from you and ask, ask you where you think things stand right about now. I know you always think about things sort of in this the, in, in the machine, the economic machine. So help us understand what, what's going on inside Ray Dalio's mind right now. Well, I think it depends on the time frame, and I think the relevant time frame is the next few years. Um, and I think you have to put things in the context. So there are three big forces that have been at work, and I think you have to understand those. First is the debt money thing. How much debt right. and money, and what are the repercussions? How does that pass through the economy? What does that mean for markets, inflation, and so on? That, we're in a different era now. Zero interest rates, produce a lot of debt and monetize it. Second influence, the conflict, internal conflict, over wealth, left-right conflict, that conflict. And then the third is the rising of a great power in the form of China, challenging an existing great power and challenging the existing world order. 
Those three things are coming together at the same time as then we have a pandemic. So I think each one of those is a cycle. They, uh, what's happening now has not happened before in our lifetimes, but has happened in the 1930 to 45 period. I went back and studied it yes, over 500 have. years. And so it's that context. So I think if we're talking about anything, we should look at that within that context. Okay, let's, let's break it down then. And let's start with the, the, the debt situation that we have in this country uh, the, and, and, the, and the zero interest rates. Given, given you're a student of history, what happens next? Um, we have, there's not enough money to go around, right? We're, we're spending a lot more than we're earning. And we have to do that, partially because of this social right. redistribution, that necessity, and they can't take it from, all from taxes. And what that means is the printing of money. So it's the mechanics of that. So what, what you do is you get more money. And so that devalues the value of money. In other words, right. cash is trash. You came, it, you came on our air, I think, at Davos and said cash is trash. You still believe it? Of course you don't. Look, you don't, this is guaranteed you are not going to have an interest rate that's going to compensate you anywhere for inflation. So you have to look at the cost of the money, right? And so the co- that interest rate, whether right. it's the bond rate or whether it's the cash rate, certainly, you're not going to get that. And so you ha- we have this wonderful sugar high, which is to distribute the, ch- the checks and so on. But that means everything else goes up in relationship to cash because it's better to borrow cash. That's just mechanics. So we have that dynamic underway. So we produce inflation. But what you do know is that interest rates must be below inflation rates and must be below the nominal growth rate in order to deal with all of that debt in order to finance it. And that depreciates the value of cash and money. So you have to invest it elsewhere. That's the dynamic, right? So that suggests to me two things. Somewhat bullish, therefore, on the markets, I would think. On, that's right. On the margin, so if we look at the expected return of equities, let's say U.S. Right. equities and so on, and you do the projections of present value of discounted cash flows type of thing, you probably can have somewhere in the vicinity of 35 or 4% return, and you probably can get so return relative to the return of cash, it's a better deal. But those, as equity prices go up, those excess returns go down. That's right. what produces more of a bubble. In other words, right. the lower returns there. And as that shrinks, and then if you should have rates to rise, that cushion narrows. And as that cushion narrows, you come into more and more danger right. zones. So that's what we're seeing happening. Do you believe we're in an inflationary environment? And, and I say that because that seems to be the prevailing view right now. However, we talked to Kathy Wood on, on Monday. She said, you know what, actually, next five years, deflationary because of technology. Well, there's, um, uh, uh, there's the, those are the pros and cons, right? Um, so we're in an era where there's much greater inventiveness, and that's going to produce productivity if it's managed well in this politically challenging environment. But if it is converted right. into productivity, that's, that, that is a deflationary force. But we're simultaneously in this world in which nobody is really going to get paid for those assets. Right. Okay. So you have to have the debt monetization. There's nothing that you can increase in supply quicker than money and and money and credit. So let's look at it this way. There's a a big increase in the value of financial assets. So think about yourself, each individual, and say how much of your net worth is in financial assets versus actual things, your house, your other things, your, your equity. 
And a lot of that money, will, there's too much of that money in financial assets that will never be able to get paid. Because if you calculate how much is it in financial assets, and a financial asset is only a claim right. to buy goods and services, otherwise it's worthless, there's an enormous amount of that. How is that going to be dealt with? It has to be dealt with with the printing of money. Right. So you have those two forces. I think the greater force is the force of what the, the, those financial assets that the world in together right. will never be able to convert into goods and services because they're just too much of it. So what do you do? Does that mean you want to be owning as much real estate as possible, leveraging yourself? Does that say to yourself that crypto, crypto and Bitcoin uh, is more valuable than, I mean, this goes back to I cash think, is trash. Where do you put the cash? Okay. First, no cash is trash. So don't keep it in cash, right? Second, the most important thing I think that an individual investor or any investor could do is know how to diversify well, because all those asset classes will outperform cash. And so if you, but also risk, when you can diversify well, and what I mean diversify, diversify countries, currencies, asset classes and so on, so that you have that balance. Then you take your, pra- the, your tactical moves from there. But the most important thing, I think, is to diver- know how to diversify well. I think most people are not doing that. I think most people think, okay, it's the stock market. And, and the stock market, I think, is relatively attractive in relationship to the alternatives. But that dynamic is going to start to change as monetary policy gets tighter and so on and so forth. So diversify well in those various areas, the country, the currency, the asset class. I I mentioned briefly the idea of crypto, and I know you've had different views of this. A lot of people think of that as a, a new investment class that has had enormous run thus far, but also as a way to mitigate, if you will, against the idea of what the value of cash becomes. Well, I think it's worth considering all the, uh, the alternatives to cash and all the alternatives to some of the financial assets. Um, and so Bitcoin has, um, has that, is a possibility, is that a merit? Right. I have a, a certain amount of money in Bitcoin. It's a small percentage of that which I have in gold, which is a relatively small percentage of what I have in my other asset classes and so on. And I think that that has the merit. It's, it's, an, it's an amazing accomplishment to have brought it from where that programming occurred to where it is in t- the test of time. On the other hand, it's, if, if it's successful, it's going to not be, the governments don't want to have it successful. You don't want to have but an alternative. But we're starting to see currency. governments like El Salvador. I know that's not exactly uh, going to be the leading government on this, but there are, there are governments that may take this on. But no, 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 no. Um, it, the, you have El Salvador taking on, and you have India and China getting rid of it, and you have the United States talking about how to regulate it, and it could still be controlled. So that's right. what, what it looks and like. Are you a, if you're El Salvador and you talk about your alternative monies, you know, it's a different thing. Do you believe that regulation ultimately will make something like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have a future, or do you think regulation will kill it? Well, I think regulation—I think at the end of the day, if it's really successful— They'll kill it, and they'll try to kill it, and I think they will kill it because they have ways of killing it. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have, um, you know, a place, a, a, right. a, a, a value, and so on. But it's one of those things but that if they has kill it, it's right now. It, it doesn't have intrinsic value. If you look, if you put cryptocurrencies or let's say Bitcoin in the historical perspective, 
right? Right. There are so many things in a historical perspective that were given intrinsic, that didn't have intrinsic value and were have perceived value and then became hot and then they become cold. And so it could be either way. You just have to know what it is, right? right. I mean, like, it, you know, it, it could be a tulips in, um, in Holland. You know, and the intrinsic value. It, it, so, what is the value? And then there are technological changes. I don't. I'm no expert on that. I'm just trying to say that right. you ask me my, what my opinion is. Take it for what it's worth. I'm no expert on it. I think it. I think diversification values. Right. It, it matters. I suspect the real question that investors should be asking themselves is how much stuff like that do they have? Do how much stuff do they have? Do they have gold? Okay, should we be talking about how much you have in gold versus how much you have in Bitcoin? And do you have a diversification right. in those kinds of things that we might call intrinsic value money? Because we have a fiat monetary system, okay? Right. With a fiat monetary system, where is your hard money? That's the question, right. and I, however you go after it, I think that's the question to be answered. Okay, there's two other pillars to the, to the conversation we're having here. I mean, you spelled out three, three different sort of pieces of the machinery. I think actually maybe five in total, but let's focus on the three. The political environment right now, you have long talked about taxes and inequality and what's happening here. Overlay that on top of what you just said. Well, we have, a, um, we have large wealth and opportunity gaps. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, I wrote a piece which was called uh, Why and How Capitalism Needs to be Reformed right. because besides not being fair... Um, it is not achieving the goal of being able to have broad-based opportunity because capitalism intrinsically um, cr uh, creates prosperity, but it creates it in a different way for different people. Right. And that self tends to be self-perpetuating because those who earn the money then take care of their kids and they have better education and so on. And if you look at the bigger cycle, when you get up and rich and then you get into some problems, you have wealth gaps and the whole thing gets challenged. And that's the cycle that we're in. And so the question is the how do you make productivity continue to increase rather than just redistribution? Right. And so that's where we are politically. We have that conflict. We see the left-right conflict. We see it play out now in the tax bills and so on. We're going to see it in the 2022 elections. You're going to see it in the... Two th and that conflict itself is the ingredients of some form of civil war conflict. It doesn't lend itself to you working really, together. I mean, you've talked a lot about... You've used that phrase civil war before. Do you think that we really are headed that... Well, I think the, the question is what's a war? You know, a war, it, it doesn't have to be killing each other. Okay, well, I don't mean it that way. I mean, but, it, but sometimes when it gets out of control, it, it does lead to that. It's a good thing that we read history and see how it has left in the past, how moderation has gone to extremism. It's something we should be aware of. But it is, uh, we certainly have um, kind of a war developing between uh, um, the various factions, the states, it's, right. and so on. And how that will be resolved, like in the 2022 elections, there's still the question, um, there's talk of um, systematically challenging those elections. Right. And if, and if there's a systematic challenge, that's a challenge to democracy. Because if you don't know who gets to sit in the seat to make the votes, 
How do you resolve that kind of thing if the system isn't there? there it depends how extreme we get. So I'm not talking right. about the fact that we will go there. I'm just saying you have to be aware of it. And, and the more we're aware of it, maybe the more cautious right. we're going to be not to be that way. But if we don't pull together as a country, okay, if we keep fighting with each other and have this together with the bad finances and together with a rising power challenging the existing power, that's right. not going to be putting forward our best. As an investor, though, how, how do you assess the tail risk to the extent that's a tail risk of of the situation you just even described in 2022? Well, you always have to take the tail. The first thing you have to do is deal with the tail risk. Eliminate the tail risk in one way or another and then go from there. You can eliminate tail risks with a very small percentage of your portfolio, right? It can be done, and that's a structural question. Not only what assets you hold, but also what options you might hold or whatever you might do to eliminate that tail risk, right? Because the market is not really taking that tail risk and pricing it in. So eliminate right. it. Right. Okay. And there, so in market positions and so on, right. you can do that. Um, let's talk about China because you have a view that, that China will eventually, I think, overtake the great American empire. No? Well, I mean, if you just take lines on charts and you get basically see what's going on in terms of basic fundamentals, there are four times more than four times uh, as many Chinese. And so if they had an average per capita income that was half the average American, they will be twice as large as the United States. And if you take their growth rate and so on, it is likely that China and today China is comparable in many ways. They're a larger percentage of world trade. Uh, They're comparable in GDP production, depending on whether you're doing it PPP adjusted or not, and so on. So it is a reality today that they're roughly comparable and that they are increasing their strength at a faster rate than we are. That's a reality. Given, though, the regulatory crackdown in China right now, there are a lot of people who say, you know what, you shouldn't be investing in China. You have a different view. Yeah. uh, uh, First of all, I think... People have not, a lot of people have not spent a lot of time there. I've I've been going there since 1984, and I've been very lucky to know many people from the most common people to the most uh, senior leadership and so on and so forth. And I think um, you have to understand what's going on, and I'll just try to say it in a nutshell, okay? Um, Everybody follows the approach that they believe is best for their own country. I can't tell you whether... Their approach, our approach, my my job isn't to do that. But they have a top-down approach rather than a bottom-up approach, very much like a strict parent. So um, the question, the riddle that you have to have asked yourself, answered before, is how does a communist party that talks about Marxist-Leninism and at the same time um, has such the second largest capital markets and the development of capital markets coexist. And the answer to that is that they believe that capitalism is a way of increasing the wealth and power of the country. That's been key. key, At the same time as it is important to redistribute it. If you look at the policies of, um, that are being dealt with now, and I, I can right. rattle off the four elements of those policies, they're not going to disrupt, they're not going back to what you would call the old communism that you're, you're it's, they're very practical people. And so the issue is really, um, the issue is um, uh, more control, like they right. will tell your kids what, how many video games they can watch where you wouldn't. It's like a strict parent. 
and, and they will redistribute the wealth. But if you take the measurements of capitalism right now, I have a continuum of a lot of measures I won't get into, but um, of capitalism, the United States and China are the most capitalist countries. Right. And, it, and if you were to say, will they go as far to the left as Europe has gone? It's unlikely that they will go as far right. to the left as Europe has gone on those measures, whether those are tax, redistribution, the effect of capital markets and the like. And you can't get in and out of a place um, on a basis of that. In addition, you need diversification. Right. Okay, so if you have two great powers, two developments of technologies and so on and, and so forth, and you're looking what percentage of your portfolio do you have here and how, right. what percentage of your portfolio there, diversification is a key element. So when I look at it, I think that there are risks in the United States. There are risks there. We can talk about those. Right. Diversification is important, and I think the fundamentals are basically sound. To the extent that there are critics who say, you know, your fund, I believe, manages some money for the Chinese government, that, that your view is uh, related to that. What, what do you tell those? I, I, I manage money for the American government. <laughs> I mean, I manage money for investors all along the way. I can't, I can't survive, and it's also, it's, I can't be myself if I'm not speaking honestly and directly about that. I went to China. I've been in China for 20 years before I ever did anything economically. For them, I won in 1984. They didn't have any money, and I and I liked them, and I and I was play, pleased to be part of helping them develop their capital markets and the like over that period of time for not money reasons. Right. And I, money, if you think money, uh, I've got enough money. And what do I have in terms of my choice? But I, I do business with a, a right. lot of other. Pl- people who can choose those types of things. Um, the, 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 the issue is the issues I'm talking about. Okay, you have these two competitors. Do you want to bet it all on one? Right. Okay. And besides, look at the track record. This is going to become a longer conversation, and we're actually going to have it a little bit later at the SALT conference. I want to thank you this morning, Ray, for a great discussion. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. It's a pleasure. You bet. Becky? Andrew, uh, great conversation with Ray. Give him our thanks, too. Cheese will be next. Next, on Squawk Pod, living with COVID and our new normal. Former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. I believe this is the last big wave of infection, and then we're going to have to deal with coronavirus as a more endemic virus. This is going to evolve into a constant threat. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Our show today is from two studios and from the west side of Manhattan, overlooking cruise ship docked on the Hudson River. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box uh, here on CNBC. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick. And Andrew Ross Sorgan, who's not uh, covering the, the cruise industry, uh, that's not, uh, it's not what he's, he, he's actually doing today. He's live uh, at the SALT conference, a few avenues uh, west of here. And um, I don't know, Becky, uh, how many people you think that, I think it's a virgin uh, <laughs> a cr- cruise ship. It's, that it's, looks a vir- like one of, it's a virgin ship. Make you a little uncomfortable? It does. <laughs> four, th- four or 5,000 people. Um, all at that buffet line. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, maybe, 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 uh, maybe later for that, right, Andrew? A couple like decades later. I don't want to say anything. No, I don't want to say anything. Too late. 
COVID still uh, having a big impact uh, on investors, uh, booster shots and uh, getting children vaccinated on the front of minds. And for that, in person, we have him today. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner and CNBC contributor, serves, of course, on the boards of Pfizer and Illumina. He's got a new book with an amazing review in The Wall Street Journal today. The book is called Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushes Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. And it is out this month. Good morning to you. It's so Good nice to see, to see you after. Yeah. How long has it been? It's been a couple of years. Has yeah. it been a couple of years? Well, two years, I think. Last time probably was in March when I was on set. Right before. And you were worried, if I remember. I was doing my own makeup. You, you were? <laughs> I was very nervous. You knew. Yes. Okay, so here's a question. We're here at this conference. This is the first time that uh, an in-real-life person conference has been taking place at this magnitude. I think there's more than 2,500 people here. They're all, uh, they ask for vaccination cards. Uh, some are masked, some are not. I think there's a lot of business people who are trying to sort of make sense of how they're supposed to go about their life. Are they supposed to attend these events when they do? How are they supposed to do it? And as we've discussed, you know, some people have, you know, unvaccinated children at home, some don't. And so, you know, you're not supposed, I, I don't think you can begrudge certain people over other people about how they want to approach it. So what, what, what's, well, look, what's the Gottlieb family doing? I think, so, I think a lot of the residual anxiety people feel about going to work, going to settings like this is that they, they're vaccinated, but they're worried they'll get an infection, it'll be asymptomatic or mild, and they'll bring it back into the home to their unvaccinated children. I think once children start to get vaccinated, some of that anxiety will be alleviated, and people will have to figure out what, what risks they're willing to take. This is a safe venue in the setting of COVID. I mean, you're in a low prevalence environment in New York City right now. They're requiring vaccination. They used a very big venue so they could space right. people apart. So they've taken steps to try to make this a safer environment. We're going to have to learn how to live with this. This is going to become an endemic virus, and we're going to have to learn how to assimilate you know, daily risk into our lives. But once more people are vaccinated, I think that there's going to be an added level of comfort around professional activities like this. Okay, so let's let's talk about there's, the, there's going to be the, the booster shot, which may add to certain people's comfort. And then there's kids. There's a Financial Times report out suggesting that Pfizer actually, uh, in terms of children now, I, I think two to five, uh, there may be some new data coming in November. Right. And then prior to that, hopefully between five and 12, what's, what's your, if you're looking at a calendar right now for the, the average family in America that has, has kids between five and 12, let's say, when do you think that they're going to have an opportunity? Well, the, the, the five to 11, so 12 and above right. is authorized. It's the adult dose. The five to 11 is a 10 microgram dose. So it's basically one third the current dose, but the same vaccine. That F, Pfizer's going to have data on that by the end of September, and they're going to be able to file with the FDA very quickly. So if FDA does a four-week review, there's the potential that could, that could be available before the end of October, early November. Um, if FDA does a six-week review, it'll slip into November. Hopefully the FDA does a positive review of the file, but it's going to be ultimately up to FDA whether or not that gets authorized. With respect to the vaccine for younger kids, six months to four years, um, more likely you're going to have data end of November. So that's going to slip. It's, it could potentially be something that becomes available in 2021, again, depending on how long right. the FDA review is and what the data shows. But that's a little, a little further off. But um, five, four to 11, 5 to 11 could be available by around Halloween. And do you think that changes case. the equation for businesses that have said, you know what, we're not doing in office until January 22? I think a lot of the, the rationale around that was there's a view, at least on their calendars, that maybe by then kids will get covered, third boosters will be done. You, does that timeline make that sense to you? I think it's part of it. I think there's also a lot of uncertainty about what this Delta wave is going to look like. I, I believe this is the last big wave of infection, and then we're going to have to deal with coronavirus as a more endemic virus. It's, and it's not going to be sort of a clear line demarcating those two states between pandemic and endemic. This is going to evolve into a constant threat. 
And I think a lot of businesses don't know what that delta wave is going to look like here in the Northeast. Is right. it going to be brisk? Is it going to be prolonged? I think we're going to have a sharp wave at some point. It's going to pick right. up this month into next month. On the back end of that, prevalence is going to decline, maybe 20 cases per 100,000 people per day. And I think in that kind of an environment, it's going to feel safer to return to more activity. But the, the vaccinating kids is a part of that. I think it's going to give right. people more confidence to go back into the office. Joe's got a question for you back okay. in the studio. Hey, hey Scott, start with, I'll start with something maybe positive and then uh, maybe something worrisome. But if you had natural immunity, and we've had this discussion a lot about what, what's better, but let's, let's not even get into that. But just if we add natural immunity to vaccinated uh, totals, what, what, what do you estimate it is right now in the country? Yeah, look, I think it's, first of all, it's not uniform across the country, but I think nationally it's much closer to a level where you're approaching um, some semblance of herd immunity. Not true herd immunity where this stops circulating entirely, but a level of immunity where you're going to see case rates start to decline pretty dramatically. You're seeing that Is already in the South. So 75% of it, it's probably higher than 80 Probably, probably higher than 80% of people have some form of immunity, either from prior infection or from vaccination. Because you have 75% of adults over the age of 18 have been vaccinated at, with at least one dose, 76 actually. Most of them will complete the series. Then of the remaining 25%, we know at least a third of them have had COVID, probably more than that, because probably the people who are unvaccinated are overrepresented by people who've had COVID. So you add another 15% to that, you're at 80, you know, you're at 80, 85% easily. Um, so I think that we have more immunity in the population in what we're fully measuring. And the chance that that there could be a more virulent or more contagious strain, I, I think tabloids jump on everything Dr. Fauci said, but he said a monster strain that if we don't, uh, you know, get everyone vaccinated where it stops, you know, we can hope for no more, not as many mutations or that where it's not as easy. Is, have you seen that historically where, where it actually gets more virulent? Um, or, or do, I've read that normally it becomes less virulent as, as the, the strains, the, original, the further you get from the original strain. Is that still possible to get a horribly virulent and contagious strain of COVID? Yeah, it's unpredictable is the bottom line, and it cuts both ways. But conventional wisdom is that as this virus is going to evolve, it's going to evolve in ways that makes it more contagious and less virulent, and we're going to have more immunity against it, that you're not going to have a sudden shift in the virus where all of a sudden it defeats our existing immunity. Most, most people think that if a new strain emerges that partially escapes the immunity we have from vaccination and from prior infection, it's probably going to be in the Delta lineage. It's probably going to be a new variation of Delta. It's not going to be Mu. It's not going to be Lambda. So in that case, you could develop a vaccine that targets the Delta backbone. And now you're going to have a vaccine that's probably closer to what could emerge in the future. And in fact, the manufacturers, including Pfizer, where I'm on the board, are developing vaccines based on the Delta backbone to have in, the back, in their back pocket, sort of, in case you get a shift like you're suggesting. That's probably more like a 2022 type of event if we end up revaxing the population to fall 2022. It could be with a Delta backbone. That decision hasn't been made. Regulators are going to need to meet and public health officials and make a decision about what that vaccine should look like. But I think we're going to be able to be prepared for it if, that, if something like that does emerge. And there's nothing really on the horizon right now to suggest that we're going we're gonna to see that. But conventional wisdom is that this virus is going to continue to slowly evolve in a direction away from our existing immunity. So it's going to be a persistent risk, but we're going to know how to deal with it. Hey, Scott, um, I've seen some studies lately that suggest Moderna's shot has more lasting durability uh, than, than Pfizer's. And, and I just wonder, are there any studies being done right now about whether you'd have better immunity if you started with one uh, vaccine, but then you got your booster from another brand, whether that be J&J, &J, Moderna, Pfizer. Is anybody actually studying that? 
People are studying the so-called mixing and matching, including the NIH. There isn't any data to suggest that there's a better strategy in terms of using one vaccine and another vaccine in combination. But there's also no data to suggest that there's any problems with using these vaccines interchangeably. And once we start authorizing boosters, inevitably there's going to be inadvertent and deliberate substitutions. And so you want to have data to at least demonstrate that that's safe. You know, I, I've said all along, I think that these vaccines are clinically comparable. The clinical data really shows a comparable effect from these vaccines. I could sit here and tell you reasons why I think some of the data is showing a difference with Pfizer right now, but I don't, I don't believe that that's really a durable difference and a real effect. We're collecting more data with Pfizer. Pfizer was put in a hospitalized population early on. It was authorized sooner, so people who got Pfizer early on, which were mostly an older and sicker contingent, are now further out from their vaccines. So I think that there's some, some artifact in the data. I've been pretty consistent in my belief that these vaccines are comparable. I've said that when there was data showing Pfizer might be slightly better. I've said that when there's data showing Moderna might be slightly better. So that's kind of where I come out. And the bottom line is once we start boosting the population, any small perceived differences between these vaccines is going to come out in the wash. It's not really going to be clinically meaningful. So I think people should be confident that all these vaccines are safe and effective, including the J&J vaccine. There's been incremental data looking at the J&J vaccine, which offers a very durable response. And I think J&J is going to have even more data soon um, affirming that. And so that still is a very good vaccine. And they're going to have data looking at a second dose of J&J as a six-month booster after the first dose. And I would expect that data to look very strong as well. So we need to remember, we actually have three safe and effective vaccines that all look very good over time. Speak to this, if you could, doctor. You've been uh, suggesting, I think, for the past month or two that we could get a, a real um, peak out or something in, in the Northeast. That has not happened yet. I was going to say, right here in Manhattan uh, today, the rate is 2.61%, if you, if you believe those numbers. Um, what do you think is going to create that? And given, actually, the level of, I don't want to say herd immunity, but just the, the, the level of vaccination in a place like New York and actually in large parts of the Northeast... Are these going to be largely breakthrough cases? Well, some of them are going to be breakthrough cases. Delta is very good at finding pockets of vulnerability and susceptibility in the population. And if you look at the population as a whole, you're right. We have much heavier um, vaccination rates in this, in this part of the country. We've had a lot of prior infection. But there are pockets of people who are still, still susceptible. And Delta is very good at getting in those geographic and social compartments and infecting people who are still vulnerable. I don't think we're going to have anything like the wave we saw in the South, but I do think that we're going to have some kind of Delta bump. It's going to be driven by back to school, back to work, and people starting right. to feel more and you just don't think we've seen it in the numbers yet? I don't think we've seen it in the numbers yet. I think it's going to pick up. The, the sort of Delta bump that we had in the summer, I think, was a, what gave us some false comfort that we had our Delta wave. Our Delta wave is going to come. It's going to start to pick up this month into October, maybe by November. That's the pattern that followed last year as well. We had that big surge in the summer. We felt pretty good in September here in New York. And then by, no, by Election Day, by November, it was clear that there was more pervasive spread. It won't be anywhere near as bad as it is in the South, but I do think it's going to pick up. So, Scott, just on that point, if we're looking at Halloween before kids under 12 can get vaccinated, are, are the vaccines going to do them any good with this wave? Or are we basically going to be through the wave before any... Um, Vulnerable before any immunity kind of kicks in with that group. And if they can get in in October, does that mean it will actually be supplied? Will there be places they can go? Because this is a different shot. 
it's not going to provide immediate protection, although kids derive more protection after a first dose than adults do. So, so there's going to be more immunity provided by that first dose with the children. Um, in terms of availability, it's going to be widely available because this actually is the same shot. The, the dose for kids is the exact same formulation as the dose for adults. It's just one-third one third the amount. So you could use, I mean, you're going to need to put it in smaller vials, which are available. You, you, you can use the same vials and just all you're doing with, is withdrawing um, one-third the amount, less of the amount. The reason why you have to put it in a different vial is because the current vial, you go back in, you know, 10 times. You can't go into a vial 30 times. Um, CDC and others worry about uh, the risk of infection right. if you keep going in and out of a vial. Okay. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, it is so good to see you in person. I think we do a <laughs> fist bump here, right? We do that? Thanks a lot. Thank you. Appreciate it. Uh, the new book is called Uncontrolled Spread and is out this month. It is so good to see you in person. Hope to see you tomorrow, probably, hopefully, on the air, but, but maybe uh, from a distance. See you soon. Good Joe? to see you. Oh, that wide shot, Andrew. Those are, I see Lulu's. Are those the Lulu's? No, no, no. no. These are, oh, those are real. I upgraded, okay. you know. A little bit. This is some, some, Ralph, <laughs> some Ralph Lauren today, you know, just trying to. Oh, you I, are. You know, it's like, being, it's either, you know, at home. Like when we're together, Joe, it's like being at home. I can wear my Lulu's at You're home. You're right. You're when right. We're very out, comfortable. When we're I go very out com- to see people. Let's right. ramp that up a notch and just, heck, I'm not, you know, maybe even uh, jammies one of these days in here in, on, on the set, Andrew. Let's just do it on a Friday. That's Squawk Pod for today. To see pictures and clips of Andrew at the Salt Conference, check out our Twitter feed, at Squawk CNBC. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. They are on CNBC weekday mornings from 6 to 9. You can listen to this podcast anytime. Follow Squawk Pod on your podcast platform of choice. And thanks for listening. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. Thank you. That was awesome. (laughs) Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.